What is up, friends? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. Today, we're going to continue on to part two of the Q&A over deflation. And uh, we jump into things like CPI, asset price inflation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the, it's, I think <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing this Q&A, these two parts here. Hopefully I can do more in the future. So if you do have questions that you want to send in, you can do that uh, on DMs on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. You can do that on Discord. The link to that is in the show notes to any episode over on BitcoinandMarkets.com. Also, on each post on Bitcoin and Markets, there is also a discuss, uh, you know, comment thread at the bottom that you can add a question in there. Uh, so check out the different ways to send in a question. And if we get some good ones, I will be answering those on future episodes. All right. Let's jump right into it. See you on the flip side. Okay, let's go on to the next one. How come there's no consensus on what is or is not inflation and what is or is not likely to come in the next 12 to 18 months? Well, What's likely to come in the next 12 to 18 months, the future is uncertain. And I mean, the system right now, if we look at reverse repo and all this stuff recently, um, the, the economy is extremely fragile. At least the financial system is extremely fragile. I think that this uh, reverse repo says a lot about the fragility. And uh, people don't understand what's happening today. So, of course, they're going to differ on what they think is coming in 12 or 18 months plus you know it's obviously the future is uncertain so we can't say for for sure but i my prediction is that the the economy is fragile it's more fragile for emerging markets right now at least for the coming years um i think the dollar will remain relatively strong um defying all other people out there they're saying that it's going the you know the end of the dollar is coming it's going to be relatively strong the emerging markets are going to be hit and europe are going to be hit more than the u.s but we'll see how that goes also china i think is extremely fragile their credit impulse is contracting right now the yuan is strengthening which is not good for their exports their export driven country that needs to export around the world the, their yuan, I believe, is at like a four or five year high, and they had some emergency meetings recently. So uh, China is is really hurting. They can't even control. They can't even claim hegemony over all of their territory with uh, Taiwan not really part of China, uh, and them having a basically a genocide going on in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, Xinjiang. I don't know that that uh, northwest province. So. Um, China's in, in dire straits and, you know, the Soviet Union lasted what, 75 years. And this is getting about long in the tooth for China as well. Uh, we'll see if the communists even last, um, the decade. I, I wouldn't be surprised with a breakup over there that would rock the monetary world. So anyways, um, yeah. And then why can't we come to consensus on inflation versus deflation? Well, this is like the textbooks are wrong. 
Okay, Jeff Schneider has a, a brilliant saying. He says, the textbooks are the 1960s view of the 1930s. There has been no new innovation in thinking in economics. People don't understand the banking system. They don't even want to understand the banking system. All they want to do is increase reserves. And they're going to keep doing that. They're, they're going to have to be, I mean, no, no time soon are they going to change. This is probably going to go on at least another four or five years before they may, might try something new. And who knows what that new thing is? Is it adding Bitcoin to their reserves? You know, going to somebody going to a Bitcoin standard? We'll have to see. But I don't think that's an unlikely possibility. Uh, I think it's a not not a fairly likely possibility in the next four or five years, but it's possible. It's definitely possible. Um, so yeah, the, the, the textbooks are wrong. And then the alternative schools of economics, like the Austrian school, which I'm a disciple of, I'm a big fan of Hayek and Rothbard and Mises, and even Holzman, you know, with the ethics of money production. I thought that was a great book. But there hasn't been any real, I would say, acknowledgement of the way that money is acting today. Um, according to the Austrians, we would have had hyperinflation in the dollar by now, right? And so how long do you wait for that to happen? Um, I, I don't think there is people, people, nobody's holding these inflationist feet to the fire and saying, where's the inflation, dude? Come on, show me this broad-based increase in prices you know if you're claiming that there's money printing and that there's a uh, net inflation out there a net increase in the money supply show me the broad-based increase in prices so i think hopefully over the next uh, couple years we'll have some more people speaking up and getting noticed about that and maybe i will play a part in that i have no idea but i try to do my little little piece without sticking my neck out too much as a bitcoiner but, um, okay, let's continue. Next one is, gold has a reputation of being a hedge of inflation. Has that proven true or false over time? Well, over time, like long-term, thousands of years, it's proven very true. Um, I don't know about the future, if that's going to hold. Um, over, even over a century time frame, it's held up pretty well. Um, but as you get down into the decade time span and into the yearly time span and whatever, then, you know, obviously there's a lot more fluctuation in the price. Uh, so yes, it's been a good one throughout time, not throughout the years, but throughout the centuries. And, um, will it continue in the future? I don't know. Like one of my things, uh, one of the Bitcoin arguments is that, um, gold will lose its monetary premium to Bitcoin over the next few years. And I, well, next few years, the next couple decades or something like that. And yeah, I think that's very, very possible. I'm not bearish on gold per se. I'm bearish on gold as a money, but not as maybe an investment. It's not going to be anywhere near, like if you have the same investment thesis for Bitcoin and gold, you're wrong buying gold. Um, Bitcoin is going to outperform for many decades. Uh, so I don't see a reason to own gold really at this time, even though I still do own some gold, but, uh, gold has been, it has done very well and it has a place in every portfolio, I believe, but 
not nearly as high or high amount of allocation in the portfolio as Bitcoin. Um, an interesting side thought on this is that, you know, as Bitcoin grows up and gets larger and larger market cap, the volatility will be less. Okay. Um, <laughs> it sounds bad or sounds weird saying that now after we just had a 50% drop in price here mid cycle. But, um, no, I think the volatility of Bitcoin will decrease, and I think that the volatility of gold will increase because gold and Bitcoin as a speculative uh, its speculative nature will kind of swap. Bitcoin will become much more uh, entrenched than gold. So that's that's an interesting thought. Okay, next one. Bitcoin has a reputation of being a better hedge than gold. Will that play out? Uh, yes, that is, I I think it will. Okay, then he says, by the way, maybe you should start with number five. Uh, my number five that I gave him as examples was uh, common topics like asset price inflation and CPI. Okay, let's get into the CPI. So I've kind of mentioned this a little bit here. Um, the main thing about CPI is people don't, okay, I used to think it was a broad conspiracy that... The Fed wanted to print money, the government wanted to print money, and so they manipulated the CPI down so that they could print more money and people wouldn't be aware of it, and yada, yada, yada. But let me tell you, in 2009, the price of gasoline was $4 a gallon, and it's $3 a gallon today. All right, You can look at almost every price out there, and the price over the last 12 years has been relatively flat, if not down. So there is no broad-based price increases. And people know that. That's why they made up this asset price inflation, which, which is just a term to mean price increases. Um, now, remember that caveat I said earlier with the way that money is printed today is through the banks and money is destroyed in debt service or debt repayment. So... Yes, there is some truth to the Cantillon effect that money is coming in a certain way uh, and those assets are going up in price. So, for example, the mortgages, you know, mortgages are naturally collateral, collateralized with the house behind it, right? And so you can see how that would make that borrower slightly more trustworthy. The bank doesn't really want the house. Uh, they don't want to deal with selling a house they're not in the business of selling a house but um you know at least they'll get some of their money back if not all of it uh, and so they are collateralized and that borrower is more trustworthy but even then they still call your people to see if you have a good job if you are steady in your job uh, they you know so they check your income the lending standards have gone way up i know and so they are only lending to more trustworthy people. And that is where inflation is coming in. So inflation is coming in in the housing market because that's where money is created or printed. It's printed in a loan. Another thing is big businesses are more trustworthy than the little guy. And so they're going to get easier access to credit even during these um, depressionary times. You know, so on net, 
the total amount of credit in the system could be contracting. But where it's going is into housing and into stocks and into into bonds and things like that. So there is that caveat. And if that is what they mean by asset price inflation, I agree. But if that what they mean by asset price inflation is QE finds its way into the housing market, uh, that's not the case. Um, QE is not money printing. They create reserves and swap reserves for useful collateral. QE is they handicap the market. It's like putting a ball and chain around the market. Yeah, that's why I can see the argument for, and I agree that Cantillon effect is affecting asset prices, but it's not coming through the way that people say, through QE and through fiscal policy. Okay, um, next thing is, oh, CPI still. I didn't talk about that. So uh, a lot of people think that CPI is completely manufactured and a plot to enable more money printing and bankers are evil people. And I really thought that too, but I, I, I don't think so anymore. Um, I've come to see bankers as, you, you know, you meet these people in your life where they won't listen to you, right? They are experts and you're just a pleb because <laughs> you haven't been vetted throughout through their system they're playing a different game than we're playing they don't want people breaking the rules or breaking the steps to get access to the respect like that um that's one reason why i think famous people a lot of famous people don't get famous till after they die because then they don't challenge the system but anyway so yeah i i think of bankers more in that vein that they're the smartest guys in the room about this and you're just a conspiracy theorist or, or whatever. Uh, even though they're totally wrong all the time, they're never right about anything. They're always late. Uh, they don't have any idea what they're doing. <laughs> so that speaks for itself, but I don't think that they're evil. And I think a lot of people are stuck in that type of thinking, but anyway, so CPI, why is CPI not so bad? Uh, because, it's been pretty good at predicting inflation, um, at least maybe not explaining it properly exactly, but it's been pretty, pretty close. <laughs> and there's other ways to check CPI, right? You can check CPI by the price of gold. Uh, you can check CPI by um, the price of commodities in general. You can check CPI by interest rates, you know, uh, break-evens, um, five-year, five-year forward, other type of inflation expectation measurements or whatever, you can find other things to confirm what CPI is telling you. That's why I don't think it's totally off. Now, people don't like the hedonic adjustments. They don't like other things about CPI. Um, that's one of the big things behind shadow stats. If you guys are familiar with shadow stats, where it's a website that uses old ways of measuring CPI. So like, it's, I think it was around 1980. It might have been as late as 83 that they changed from measuring house prices uh, to measuring rental prices. And that is like a big conspiracy thing there as well. But again, I, I already touched on that is about the affordability and the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S., they were on top of this. You know, they, they saw that with interest rates at whatever they were in 1981, I think they got as high as 18 percent. 
but they were that high and they kind of saw in the future that those were going to come down. And as those were coming down, house prices would have to go up most likely. And so they thought that that wasn't going to be a good way of measuring this because the, that is almost artificial because the, the interest rate is falling, but the monthly payment is staying the same as the price of the house goes up. There's a lot of things like that. Plus, you know, I saw this comment on Twitter the other day when somebody was talking about this. They're like, oh yeah, the cell phone is, or the smartphone is weighted way higher than a rotary phone was back in the day. How dare they do this? Because this is a phone and they should be weighted equally. And somebody made the comment like, uh, that's silly. You can have a calendar. You can get on the internet. You can make appointments. You can have a meeting. You can write email, you know, like how many things can you do on your phone that you couldn't do with a rotary phone? It just doesn't make any sense to weight it equally with a rotary phone. But people will go to the grave saying that these hedonic adjustments are ridiculous. But that's that's the whole thing is CPI is trying to adjust to changes, changes in technology and also changes in the capital structure. Uh, changes in the situation, the financial situation of the country and the world. So that's very important to to understand. What else about CPI? Um, so Shadow Stats has shown eight to ten percent inflation for twenty years, and pretty soon I think people are going to be like, "Look, gas is cheaper today <laughs> than it was twelve years ago." I don't think we have 10% inflation. You know, people are going to start uh, waking up because prices aren't going up at 10%. That's just objectively false. You know, shadow stats, I don't, don't think has a very long shelf life. Uh, it's open source. You can go in there and check all these adjustments. It, it takes some digging. I spent half hour to an hour one day trying to find some adjustments and waiting and it was hard. Okay. But there's ways to find it if you want. It's open source. Uh, so that that's something to be said for CPI. But yeah, the, the other alternative is Chapwood Index. Lots of people respond with, what about Chapwood Index? It's showing 10% inflation in this city or 12% or even something, some of the highs like 18%. And okay, it's... I, you know how Saifedean uses altcoins as like an intelligence test? or uh, And that that's kind of the same way I feel about Chapwood Index because it, there's so many things wrong with it. First off, it's closed source. All right? They, they don't publish their raw data. And they don't publish their weights. Like you have no idea what how they're calculating this. Um, uh, the only idea you have is they have this list of like 500 different items that they are concerned with. Who knows? Who knows if they're even using those? Uh, we don't. It's completely closed source. The next thing is that they, they have a stated bias on in their very mission statement. Uh, it says that, they're, that CPI is too low. And so they're showing a higher inflation rate. Like they are just, you know, producing for their crowd and for their bias there. Lastly, um, this is a big, big one that people don't really think about very often and that is that people are hardwired to notice inflation so their method is wrong um it's a survey and they ask people about what they spent 
um, yada, 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 right? And unless you take like very detailed records, you always answer the, the survey based off your very detailed records. You don't put your opinion in there, uh, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's very hard to get good data from that kind of survey. People notice price increases much more than they notice price decreases. So it's just part of human nature uh, because, you know, we're hardwired to see patterns and to see scarcity and to make plans about the future around scarcity. And so you notice price increases more than you will notice price decreases. And th there's been studies out there to show this. Um, and so, you know, a person might notice a 20% rise in gasoline prices, but they're not going to no necessarily take as much note of a 20% decrease in gasoline prices. So uh, that that's, it's just flawed. There's multiple ways that Chapwood Index is flawed and I don't buy it at all. Okay, what else? Okay, I'll just go, th that's all of his questions. So Rob, thanks for sending those in and I hope this was a good conversation. I, I talked it out long form here for you because I think you deserved it. Uh, <laughs> it's taken me a long time to do this, but okay, uh, let's get into some of these points just to round out my thesis here. My main points are that QE and fiscal policy or government spending are not money printing. QE is an asset swap, which I detailed out just there um, pretty well, I think, I hope. Uh, then fiscal policy, which is another term for government spending, that is not money printing either because it's borrowed, right? They actually borrow the money. That's why there's a uh, a debt. So they either they either tax it or they borrow it. Um, and so fiscal policy is not money printing either. Now there's there's bad things that happen with both of these tools. So like I detailed out why QE handicaps the market. Now for fiscal policy. Its bad effects are pulling forward of demand. So one reason why we have price increases due to uh, government spending, in, which is not inflation, because the supply of money is not increasing here. But think about that. Like if you're saving money for the future, you are probably going to save it for something big, right? So you're saving for a new house or a new car or college or something. And you're, you're saving up to spend it on some big item in the future. But that is not what they're going to spend it on when they borrow it and spend it. They're going to spend it on frivolous short-term things. Maybe not frivolous. Maybe they are paying some debt off. They're paying some rent. You know, people are paying different things. But a lot of it is wasted in bureaucracy. A lot of it is wasted in just frivolous spending. And so... um it changes the capital structure. It changes the economy towards a short-term footing, towards living paycheck to paycheck, uh, towards lack of long-term planning. So it has very detrimental effects. And as you keep doing this over and over, you know, it has diminishing marginal returns because you have to pay off your existing debt by borrowing more money. So some of that new stuff you borrow has to go to pay off the old stuff. So there's diminishing marginal returns each time you do it and the economy gets more and more and not only economy, but the capital structure. And I, I want to stress that it's the capital structure. So that's what kind of jobs do people do? What's the culture? Where are the durable goods? Like think about Detroit, right? Detroit was built around pretty much a single industry. And what happened 
when that industry came on hard times. The entire city, the entire capital structure of that city was built around that one industry. It could not adapt, right? And so as you think about a country built on that same thing, for example, China. China is built off exports. Well, what happens if that market dries up? If a lot of their markets dry up, they're going to have, it's going to be the Detroit on a national scale over there. So it's a very destructive and dis, uh, distortive of the economy with fiscal policy. I 100% agree with that, but it's not money printing and it's not inflation. Banks print money. This is a bank-centered system. It all revolves around the banks. And it doesn't have to be domestic banks either. That's one of the big points, is it could be foreign banks, or it is foreign banks, like a bank in Singapore making a dollar-denominated loan, or in Tokyo, or in Frankfurt, or in London, or in Johannesburg, or in Buenos Aires. You know, these, these places are making loans, denominated in dollars, which is printing money. That's printing money. This global financial system is based off of printing of money by the banks and collateral in the system. Now, the collateral, just think about that. So all of these banks around the world are printing all this money. And there, there's going to be different repo markets. So you might have um, a repo market, say, in Tokyo that is dealing with U.S. dollars and JGBs, the Japanese government bonds. Or you could have yen and JGBs. But those markets are tiny in comparison. Tiny. Most of this repo that goes on in the world is with dollars and with U.S. treasuries. So it just makes sense that if there's $300 trillion um, and you need to have matched dollars with collateral for it to be money, for it to be liquid money, then and there's only what a government debt in the u.s of 24 trillion now what is it uh, so there's a mismatch there right well not really because they can rehypothecate those uh those treasuries there's a chain of collateral so one guy can borrow it from another guy who lends it to another guy who lends it to another guy and so that is this long collateral chain uh, using the same collateral for different dollars um, and that's one reason why you have these big freezes and big crises, because uh, it, that can unravel very quickly, right? Yeah, that is that part. Hey guys, I just need a break in here. Upon editing, I wanted to add a few notes in this section. So one of the big ideas uh, is pre-Great Financial Crisis, there was many different types of collateral that people could use. That was the rise of the mortgage-backed security, lots of other derivative-type products that people could use, um, emerging market, debt, all sorts of things, right? And so the, the collateral, which is part of the money supply, cash or dollars plus collateral, um, there was met much more pristine collateral out there because there hadn't been a big credit event. And all of this collateral seemed like it was good. Right, there was very low risk because the market goes up forever. We're in a new normal, yada yada yada. Right, um, so we're talking trillions and trillions and trillions 
of dollars worth of collateral in these kind of marginal securities. Well, then the great financial crisis happens and none of those things are any good, right? And so the money supply, which is cash plus collateral, shrinks because the collateral went bad. Then the only thing people would use was treasuries. And now it's gotten so bad that the only thing they really want are on-the-run T-bills. So you can see how, say, $100 trillion worth of collateral got shrunk down to whatever's outstanding for our T-bills now. So that's maybe $5 trillion. And that is a dramatic shrinking of the money supply. And when you do that, you also must extend these collateral chains during the good times. So you shrink the collateral, but you shrink the pool of collateral, but you extend the amount of times that it's rehypothecated and owned. And so you create this situation that's much, much more fragile. And you can't grow out of it because there's, you know, cash plus collateral is shrinking. Okay, back to, <laughs> back to my recording. Okay, and then uh, also, I do believe in inflation, that there is some inflation happening right now, like I detailed out multiple times in this episode, but uh, I think most of the inflation happened pre-2008, so it happened pre-global financial crisis, and if you look at long-term charts, say you see somebody showing a long-term chart from 1971 to 2021, and they're like, look at the inflation has gone up X percent, I would say probably 95% of that increase happened before 2008 and probably 50% of it happened only in a few years in the 70s so the real high inflation already happened we are in a deflationary bust that's why we're in a deflationary environment the end of this is not in hyperinflation the end of this is deflation okay and lastly i want to talk about bitcoin because <laughs> i haven't talked about bitcoin much here Bitcoin doesn't need inflation to win. Most of the arguments that you'll hear out there is that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Bitcoin is going to be there as the dollar hyperinflates. People are going to flee to, the, to Bitcoin. But that's not the case if you are starting to agree with me here because the dollar is not going to hyperinflate. So then what is the investment thesis for Bitcoin? Well, the investment thesis for Bitcoin is that it is counterparty-less. It doesn't have a counterparty like collateral does, uh, like repos do, like all of this other stuff. It's liquid on its own. And it's not super liquid yet, but it's getting more and more liquid. Um, so people are going to move towards Bitcoin because it is, it is a better form of gold that is way has the potential to be way more liquid than that. Um, and it's going to be a place where you find the green shoots in the economy because where the rest, the dollar denominated world is at its rope's end and there is deflationary pressure everywhere, which is, you know, towards credit contraction, which is slowing down of the system the way it is designed. Uh, Bitcoin is not that way. It's just the opposite. Bitcoin is wide open. Green shoots everywhere. The growth potential is enormous, right? And so people, the large money is going to see that and they're going to start moving in. So over the next 
probably eight years, we're going to see some dramatic, dramatic uptake, a shift in the narrative for Bitcoin away from an inflation hedge towards a growth engine. So that is Bitcoin's deflationary take here. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. That is where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, That is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called The Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinandMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.